Opening up with the uh, classic punk number, General Strike, by the band DOA from Vancouver, released on Sudden Death Records way back in 1983. 
And boy, if we were in desperate need of a general strike back in 1983 at the dawn of the Reagan era, boy, are we ever today. So, uh, you know, today we're going to be looking at the rather critical question of what is it going to take to stop Trump? And uh, uh, this past Thursday, July 19th, I was up at a, an emergency rally that was called at, um, at Times Square against uh, Trump. I guess it was um, uh, sparked, or at least it might have been planned in advance, but at least given um, greater urgency by uh, Trump's performance in Helsinki. Uh, there was an, a rally held up at Times Square. A uh, bunch of people getting together up at uh, Duffy Plaza, as a matter of fact, up at 47th Street and Broadway, and, you know, um, strumming on guitars and singing songs. Uh, and that was the thing which sort of enthused me about the rally, is that it was a genuinely grassroots effort. It did not appear to have been organized by any party or front organization. But I was frustrated by how small it was, mere hundreds, maybe a couple of thousand at the most, and given the extreme emergency situation that we find ourselves in in this country, the detention gulag now coming into place with undocumented migrants, the test population, as it were, for domestic fascism, we should be mobilizing millions, not hundreds, but millions. And I take some heart from what happened in South Korea, just back in December, which few people even seem to have been cognizant of in this country. But um, after weeks, actually months, almost two months, I think a little bit more than two months, of relentless and massive street protests that shut down Seoul and people just filled literally by the millions filling the streets of Seoul and other cities in South Korea day after day after day. The citizenry finally succeeded in bringing about the impeachment and ouster of the corrupt president, Park Gun-hae. Now, that is what we need to make happen here in the United States far more urgently, because here the stakes aren't just for one country and a much bigger country than South Korea at that. The stakes are for the entire world because the U.S. is, you know, the, the top dog superpower on the planet. And Trump, you know, <laughs> is far more dangerous than Park Gun-hae had been from a global perspective. Urgently, urgently, urgently necessitated. So what is preventing us from shutting down New York, Boston, Chicago, Atlanta, Houston, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, day after day as Trump is impeached and convicted or steps down. What is stopping us from rising to the occasion here? Now, there are obvious differences between South Korea and the United States. The former has a homogenous population in a small territory. The latter, a diverse and increasingly divided population in a very large territory. But I think the real differences are political. Apart from the broad masses being simply too 
Distracted by gizmos and consumerism to see the walls closing in, a problem to be discussed elsewhere, I see two significant obstacles to unity. The first is the fundamental split on the left. And here I'm going to talk about uh, what's going on on Facebook. I actually wrote the rant, which I'm riffing off here as a, um, as a note on my Facebook page. So, uh, and, you know, a part of me feels a little bit self-conscious about actually referencing Facebook, <laughs> talking on the subject of being too distracted by gizmos and consumerism to see the walls closing in around us. But, in fact, an awful lot of... Um, Political discourse and political contest in the real world now actually takes place in Facebook, unfortunately, but that's what it is. So um, there's a big chunk of my Facebook friends who have been aghast at the Russian interference in our elections and Trump's subservience to Putin, accusing him of treason and striking a patriotic tone. Then there's another big chunk of my Facebook friends who have been aghast at what they call the Russophobia and red baiting and have been dredging up every U.S. foreign intervention for the past several decades as if they somehow let Putin off the hook and have even been exonerating Putin of meddling. Now, I don't fall into either of these camps exactly, although I am obviously more critical of the latter. It's true that some of the signs and slogans that I saw at Times Square <clears throat> on Thursday night played into the red-baiting stereotype. For instance, using the hammer and sickle as a symbol to tar Putin with. But this sort of liberal Cold War, time warp, Russophobia, and the pseudo-radical Cold War time warp Russophilia that we see on the other side are equally errors. In fact, despite all of the mutual animosity between these two camps, they are basically the same error. Now, I don't see my commitment to democracy in terms of patriotism. The American flag that I saw some protesters waving at Times Square was one that I stopped standing for when I was 18. And it's one reason I never go to ball games. And uh, the uh, democracy that I feel some commitment to is grassroots popular democracy, which is distinct from bourgeois representative democracy. Now, under bourgeois representative democracy, there is greater elbow room for popular participation and the possibilities to build a grassroots popular democracy than under an outright dictatorship. <laughs> so, you know, given the choice between a dictatorship and a bourgeois democracy, I prefer a bourgeois democracy, thank you very much. But, um, you know, I don't um, idealize bourgeois democracy either. I view it as insufficiently democratic. And I understand, you know, the profound cultural and political obstacles to, um, to building, you know, what I call grassroots or popular democracy. But the models throughout history and in the contemporary world, which have inspired me, have been um, those of grassroots popular democracy, such as, for instance, we saw during the heroic episode in Spain 
uh, particularly in uh, Catalonia and Barcelona between um, uh, 1936 and 1939, where the anarchist essentially seized control and began instating precisely this kind of, um, uh, you know, ultra-democratic social experiment and uh, similar episodes that we've seen since then, such as the Zapatista movement in Chiapas and movements in general for uh, local autonomy and recover for recovery of land and resources of the, the peasantry in Latin America. These are the movements which really inspire me. Okay, so... Um, once again, you know, I don't see my commitment to democracy in terms of either patriotism or fealty to, uh, you know, bourgeois representative democracy. OK, however, I understand that there are lots of people who do attach their democratic values to the American flag. And I am willing to unite with them in this emergency situation as long as they are willing to unite with me and my radical left buds on equal terms. All right, then the whole question of, uh, you know, so-called Russophobia and red baiting. Well, the critical point here is that not everybody who opposes Vladimir Putin is guilty of those things. Thank you very much. I don't oppose Putin because he's a communist, which he assuredly is not. Or because he's Russian. There are plenty of Russians who I do support, such as the feminists and environmentalists and the pacifists who are being persecuted by Putin. I oppose Putin because he's a fascist. And spare me the hair splitting. Russia may not yet be a fascist state. There is still some token opposition. But Putin and Trump and their lesser partners, like Assad and Erdogan, are trying to impose an international fascist order. And if you don't get that, you just haven't been paying attention, okay? I've ranted about that plenty on this podcast before. I'm not going to rant about it tonight. You can also check out all the ranting I've done about it on my blog at countervortex.org. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Trump and Putin are engaged in a joint project to undermine the international institutions of bourgeois democracy, such as the European Union, and to um, impose a system where autocrats have a free hand to do whatever they want without any public restraints on their power. And this is a very, very dangerous moment. You know, as uh, dystopian as the Cold War was, and, you know, as much as it held the seeds for nuclear Armageddon, the notion of the leaders of the United States and Russia making common cause to impose their authoritarian order worldwide, much as Hitler and Stalin did in 1939, but then really it was really just Eastern and Central Europe that were up for grabs. Now it's the entire world. This is in its own way just as frightening or perhaps even more frightening than the Cold War was, which recalls once again the anarchist slogan, neither your war nor your peace. And, you know, the people out there who are, you know, saying, well, isn't it good that Russia and the United States are getting along now? No, it bloody well is not. 
This is, you know, the normalization. When you embrace Vladimir Putin, and for that matter, when you embrace Donald Trump, this is the normalization of war crimes and aggression. In the case of Putin, his illegal annexation of Crimea, his illegal invasion of Ukraine, his blitzkrieg that he has been carrying out in Syria, and the imposition of a consolidating dictatorship at home in Russia. When you normalize war crimes and aggression, this is also a step on the ladder of escalation along the threshold toward nuclear war. So, no, it is not a good thing that the burgeoning dictator of Russia and the wannabe dictator of the United States are all cozy and buddy-buddy and carving up the world on mutually agreeable terms. That is a retrogression for human freedom on the global stage. Anyway, so uh, in terms of, you know, all of the, um, the dissing that we've heard from some quarters over the flying of the American flag and the striking of the patriotic tone and, uh, you know, the so-called russophobia and red-baiting, quote-unquote. Um, all right, well, to a certain extent, I share those concerns, but I would fight for a sharp analysis in the context of a big movement. Rather than dismissing even the small beginnings that we now see because of perceived liberal illusions. As seemingly happened in South Korea, we should strive to put our differences aside and unite around a minimum demand. Impeach Trump. Now, a, a brief word on this minimum demand before we move on to the next obstacle to building this unity. First, it is legally feasible. A case for obstruction of justice is already there. What's missing is the political will in Congress, and it is our job to create that through street heat. Second, we do have to understand that impeachment, even with conviction and Trump's ouster, is not a panacea. The fight would have to continue the very next day. Pence is obviously deeply reactionary and a danger in his own right. There aren't any easy answers here. We're in a hell of a fix. That said, we should not dismiss the criticality of impeachment and ojalá, ouster, either. Pence is beta to Trump's alpha. He is not the one with the personality that is mobilizing the fascist base. And most importantly, impeachment would be a political defeat and humiliation for their team, which is vitally important. It would be a retreat for them and an advance for us. Now, we haven't even taken the field. Okay, the um, second factor that I want to discuss, which is holding us back from building the urgently mandated militant intransigent mass movement, which is needed in this country right now, is the phenomenon of party parasitism. Now, I don't know how this factor played out in South Korea, but here, a major obstacle to movement building here in the United States, a major obstacle to movement building has always been the relentless attempts to exploit the whole process for party building. 
the most disciplined and aggressive factions are those that are more concerned with imposing their own leadership than anything else, including effectiveness or victory. First and foremost, of course, this is the Democratic Party. The Women's March, the Science March, and some of the recent rallies against Trump's anti-immigrant police state have been basically beholden to the Democrats. This is a dilemma because we do live under a two-party system. So the Dems are well-positioned to co-opt any anti-Trump initiative. However, making our movement about principle rather than party will enhance our moral standing. And as importantly, we must advance an analysis of the long Democratic Party complicity in bringing this situation about. The consensus on free trade or neoliberalism and the connivance in the rightward shift since Reagan, culminating in the disaster of 2016. Then, seemingly a lesser factor, but uh, in terms of street organizing, at least in New York City and San Francisco and Chicago and Los Angeles, uh, a real factor as well. There are all of the various leftist alphabet soup factions, as I call them. The two most significant of these are the Revolutionary Communist Party, RCP, and the Workers' World Party. Both of these entities attempt to attach themselves like leeches to any activist effort to emerge, although the role of the latter is far more destructive. Let's talk about RCP first. This is an ostensibly Maoist outfit with an embarrassing cultish devotion to their leader, Bob Avakian, who they seem to think is going to be the American Mao. <laughs> they are uh, currently fronting an anti-Trump effort called Refuse Fascism. They were up there at uh, Times Square on Thursday night with their big banners, like barnacles clinging to the edge of the crowd. They've always operated through front groups to mask their party-building ambitions and totalitarian politics. But Workers' World are far worse. They have a plethora of front groups and splinter factions, including the Solidarity Center, People's Power Assemblies, FIST, International Action Center, Answer Coalition, the list goes on. This is in part due to their own internal factionalism, but it's also part of an elaborate shell game to hide their own leadership, which is nonetheless completely obvious to anybody who has been observing them for years, as I have. Now, not only are they party builders with totalitarian politics, but I consider them to be conscious traitors. Their Cold War time warp Russophilia runs so deep that they are more or less openly on Team Putin. For instance, their anti-war rallies, quote-unquote, have overtly displayed support for Bashar Assad. I've ranted about this on previous podcasts after the um, Trump airstrikes on Syria, the token Trump airstrikes on Syria, in, um, in response to um, Assad's chemical attack back in April, um, prompted them to hold marches across the country. It's some of them, they actually were holding banners in open support of Bashar Assad and portraits of the dictator. And um, their leaders have actually attended, particularly the leaders of, um, of uh, the International Action Center, 
have actually attended Putinist confabs in Russia, where alongside Eurofascist and white nationalist types. So they are, uh, you know, they're sort of playing both sides here, where, you know, they're making a pretense of standing up to uh, white nationalism and the alt-right here at home, where they're happy to sit down and schmooze with them in Russia. And again, this is all documented. If you have any uh, questions about the veracity of what I'm saying, just be in touch, leave a comment, and I will, um, I will give you the documentation. This all actually happened. So um, I believe that, uh, you know, Workers World and its um, various satellite entities and splinter factions are, well, certainly they're on Team Putin. That's beyond any dispute. And I would say that this ultimately means that they're on Team Trump, or they could be very, very easily. They could become so very, very easily. They're just a step away from that. So, uh, and yet, in fact, this again, this line that I'm hearing over and over again now, you know, um, from what I call the, you know, Cold War, Time Warp, pseudo-radical Russophilia crowd, is that we should, you know, be grateful to Trump for, you know, cozying up to Putin as if this is somehow, you know, a good thing and a step back from global, global escalation. So um, their toxic influence runs very deep, and it's ultimately a part of a bigger problem on the, the left in this country. And I believe that their, um, you know, their presence in our movements is uh, ultimately corrosive of our efforts to organize. So I don't know. I'm not purporting any easy answers here. I'm trying to spark a discussion. I'm not up on a soapbox saying that I have the answers because I don't. I'm asking questions. I'm not giving answers. But um, again, I will return to the positive element of the uh, Thursday night rally up at Times Square. It was authentically grassroots and spontaneous. It was organized on social media, not by, you know, party hacks out of, um, you know, the office of some of some alphabet soup party or front group. To the extent that there was any organizational leadership behind it, it seemed to be the group Rise and Resist, which does appear to be genuinely popular and decentralized and not linked to any party-building apparatus. So this is a good thing. This is encouraging. But again, it was such a small start compared to what needs to be done and what needs to be done very, very quickly. So, folks, here's my challenge to you. Prove to me that the um, social media that is in large part responsible for getting us into this mess, and I will point out that I still see Russian propaganda on Facebook multiple times every damn day. Prove to me that the social media that helped get us into this mess can also help get us out. Prove to me that we can use social media to organize independently from below in a grassroots decentralized manner and sidestep both the Democratic Party and all the alphabet soup pseudo-left factions and work rapidly and efficiently, once again, from below to build a leaderless, broad-based, intransigent, uncompromising movement around the aim of removing Trump. Now, as I've ranted before, I see the dumbing down of analysis through the totalizing propaganda environment of social media and Facebook as a central factor in bringing about the current disaster in this country and indeed in the world. 
But maybe <clears throat> looking at it from the Hegelian perspective of the paradoxical unity of opposites, maybe it also holds the only hope of, being, of, of us being able to organize and fight our way out of this dystopian situation. So uh, I'm ready to be pleasantly surprised. Boy, am I ready. If there is anybody, if there is anybody at all who is out there listening to this podcast, please weigh in. Tell me what you think. Comment. Go to my website, countervortex.org. Tell me what you think. Even if you think that I'm totally off base and I'm full of beans, please weigh in. Give me some feedback. We need to get the conversation going. We urgently need to get the discussion going as to how we are going to confront this menace, which urgently, urgently, urgently needs to be confronted right now. So um, I await your response. Please comment below or check us out online at our website, countervortex.org. We'll be back two weeks from tonight with a new podcast. So stay tuned. Join the resistance. Join the Counter Vortex. Let me know what you think. This has been Bill Weinberg. Bye-bye. For now.